0: Hi, Fintech Beat listeners. Maya Skerdi, partner at QED Investors, back again and excited to be looking ahead into 2023. Following up on our conversation about the vanishing Fintech IPO, I wanted to zoom out and look at the current Fintech market from a longer-term perspective, thinking that maybe this task of reinventing finance is a never-ending story. There are few people who have been more influential in that story than Steve McLaughlin. Steve's number is in the Rolodex of every Fintech investor. And if you're the founder of a high-potential fintech, chances are that your phone number is already in his contacts. Steve McLaughlin is the founder and CEO of FT Partners, the only investment bank focused exclusively on financial technology. Steve started FT Partners in the wake of the dot-com bust, and so he's seen as many cycles as anyone in this industry. As we open up the new year full of resolutions and hopes for change, I'm reminding myself that the best founders never stop learning. So I've asked Steve to come by and help distill some lessons from the latest fintech boom and help us make sense of what he's learned in more than 25 years of deal-making in financial services.
1: All right, Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mlythe. Appreciate you having me on. So as the year
0: turns from 2022 to 2023, where is the market today? What's going on out there?
1: Wow, good question. Um, look, I think everybody knows just from the stocks, uh, you know, getting hammered that uh, the market's down a lot and fintech is amongst uh, the hardest hit. I think the thing that's the second shoe to drop is going to be the private stuff that's going to come down in the next six nine months. So I don't think it's going to get you know much better anytime soon, honestly. But I think that's just the environment that we're in right now. And like anybody that didn't see this coming at some point, um, you know, was fooling themselves and everyone knew it was coming. Everyone I talked to for the last three, four five years knew the day was coming. Um, and it just came and it came quick and there wasn't time to really get out or anything else. So it was kind of like one of those movies where the, uh, the asteroids like hitting the earth and there's no time and everyone's going to get blown up. But in this case, the asteroid actually hit, um, but, uh, but, you know, the good news is there's life after the asteroid and, and, uh, you know, I'm still a massive, massive proponent for, you know, all things fintech long term, not all companies, not all concepts, but, you know, all areas of fintech are still massively broken, massively underpenetrated, massively, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, open for business, so to speak. I, I just tend to think that um a lot of business models weren't geared up for the market and also in certain areas you had too many people competing for the exact same clients um you know and uh, you can't have 45 people going after the same client in open banking or partnership or whatever
0: yeah it does feel like you know we we've been through this cycle once or twice where um investors start to convince themselves that financial services companies can be valued at tech multiples. And then on the way down, we say ourselves, oh, wait, wait, wait. these are financial services companies. They should be valued like financial services companies. So do you think we're going to learn anything or or is this just the way the cycle goes, Steve?
1: We may learn something and it may be applied in the next two to three to five years, but I'm sure 20 years from now, uh, people have forgotten all of this. And maybe somebody will find this podcast somewhere and say, I remember... In 2022, that guy told us everyone forget everything in 20 years, but you know, yeah, I'm yeah. sure
0: I really think people people will be listening to the podcast in, in 20 years. That sounds exactly right,
1: they should, they should, they're smart, right? Um, no, so I think look, these memories are going to be here for a, a decent period of time, but not forever. And I don't think it's true that you know, uh, financial services companies can't trade like fintech <sighs> companies, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot packed in there. I think a lot of the companies you know, um, like, I don't know, like a chime isn't really a financial services company, in my opinion. Right. Um, You know, it's, it it is kind of like a tech company, Revolut's like a tech company. Um, You know, even though they've got some licenses and regulatory stuff, you know, they're not largely a balance sheet company. Um, I think the thing that people forgot was that um, eventually, if you are a financial services company, I don't care how fast you grow today, you're going to look. You know, like, uh, you know, Alley Financial or, you know, Rocket Mortgage at your height, and you're going to trade at eight times EBITDA or something like that. You won't always trade at 30 times EBITDA or 30 times revenue. So you're eventually, you know, going to be trading at more normal multiples uh, when things flatten out or get a little slower growth. So, um, you know, that that that's something I think people tend to forget, even you know, Google and Apple and, you know, Facebook and all these companies that have tons of earnings that don't grow that fast anymore, trade at regular multiples. And right.
0: They're, they're, they're big tech stocks, but they come back to earth it just, just as much. Right.
1: But they grew big enough and fast enough and long enough that everyone still made money that got in at one, two, three billion, you know, and financial services or, you know, quote unquote, FinTech, there's not that many companies. You don't have FANG. There's no financial services company in FANG, Right. Right. You know, there's, right. There's, uh, you know, uh, maybe there's another acronym we could come up with for the bigger, you know, fintech companies. But, you know, you got your audience and your stripes and, you know, uh, your PayPals and squares and things like that that get to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 billion. But you haven't really seen anything really break out. I think there will be some of those companies, but it's going to take time. Yeah. The thing that I think happens though is people, le- people do learn from the mistakes, right? Steve,
0: we had a conversation on this podcast recently talking through market data with Morgan Stanley, and there's a crazy stat that 123 of 124 recent IPOs were trading below their IPO price. Now, that's tech, not just fintech, but you're at the center of this market. So what lessons can you draw from this price roller coaster? I mean, does the current price mean that these companies shouldn't have become public?
1: Well, the question is, are they trading at a fair price, right? Mm-hmm. Um And that's the question you got to go company by company by company on, Um, you know, I think that there are a number of examples of companies that absolutely did the right thing by going public, even though the stocks are down 75% because in their IPO, they got $600 million at very high prices or, you know, a billion dollars, you know, Marquette raised a billion dollars at the IPO at a fantastic price, Uh, the stock's way down. But uh, they have $1.6 billion on the balance sheet right now. And I'm sure they're going to be able to build their way out of that. And the stock's going to be flying in the next 6 to 12 to 18 months. You know, same thing with like an Avid exchange. You know, we um, saw those guys go public. They raised $600 million at a fantastic price. And the stock went down. The funny thing is, though, these companies are performing, right? So you look right. at Avid Market. I'm not a research analyst, but they've hit their numbers, right? They've, they're beating their numbers and the stocks have still come down. The ones you got to be worried about is they probably shouldn't have gone public is where their projections were complete nonsense and they would missed all their numbers and they've just disappointed and pissed everybody off in the public markets. Um, and uh, a lot of the FinTech companies specifically, and I'll speak to them because that's probably who's listening to this podcast. It, you know, they've actually performed they were ju- they were just overpriced, right? Because yeah. interest rates were super low.
0: It does seem like the, one big learning is this idea that the IPO is not the destination. And it it can be really hard because the whole venture ecosystem is powered by people like me who are venture investors, and we tend to exit at or after the IPO. But for the founder, that IPO is not the destination. And I think your point about performing quarter after quarter post-IPO that's that's the essential one i wonder if that was part of what people missed in the certainly in the narratives around these big ipo successes versus the reality of being a public company is a lot like being a private company you have to grow you have to perform you have to hire great people you have to you know make your customers happy
1: absolutely i mean we helped the company go public uh many years ago called uh ellie may I don't know if you ever heard of it yep. but
0: yeah, of course. The, the Ellie Mae is a, a mortgage software company.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mortgage te- technology software company that was, you know, valued at, call it $200 million on a good day at the IPO. Sold for $14 billion, you know, uh, to ICE not that long ago, right? Right. So y- you just have to execute, put your head down. Um, and all these stocks that got clobbered like Moneyline and Dave and yada yada, you know, it, okay. I personally think they're probably undervalued if, if they execute, right? and But they have a ton of capital. They're well, very well capitalized companies. And the ones that didn't go public didn't get all that money, right? Um, and And now are scraping around for money. You're not seeing any of these public companies scraping around for money right now. But you are seeing other private competitors doing that, at least the ones that didn't raise enough money privately. And there's a lot of them. So I think the IPO is a savior, not, not the savior, but a very good move for these guys. And um, uh, because I don't, I, I think the reason people went public was there was valuations got higher in the IPO market than they did in the private market, right? So right. I think all the companies that went public that I've that I mentioned on this call, got their IPOs done at way higher prices than they could have gotten in the private market. And, and I think to be honest with you, that's when it gets a little scary where if you can't find one human being uh, to give you private money um, at a top tier price, but you can somehow convince a 1,000 people in the public market to give you a little bit of money per person at, at a stellar price, that's when you flip to the IPO, right? You just hope that that lasts for a long time. So I, I think, I think, that I'll just kind of switch to this point, it, it, fundamentally the IPO market is a little broken of a market, and so is the SPAC market. Um, I, I, it'll never happen, but I, I really do believe IPOs should be coupled with um, private private placements, right? So in order to go public at a value of X, you should also have at least one investor of significant size doing um, uh, a private placement into the IPO price. And you could know, imagine here.
0: that working just as a, as a signal to retail investors as well, right? It doesn't have to be a law. It could just be
1: a market practice going forward. That's right. The street, the street should command it because the street should say. When I say the street, Wall Street, you know, T Rowe and all the fidelity, they should say, "Look, you know, if, if you can't find someone to command at the IPO price that has that has done a lot of due diligence, right? right. Um, and is a private investor and got access to the inside information, so to speak, and that's what you get. So if you invest in an IPO at the IPO price, um, you you can get full blown mm-hmm. diligence." Uh, not just the 30 minute management meeting at a 10K. The only thing you got to do is give up 180 day lockup, right? right? So, you know, so if you can't find one investor to do that at your asking price at the IPO, then, okay, something's wrong. And I don't think the IPO investors should be coming in. But what happens is all the big banks fluff up all these valuations and the big, you know, buy side firms believe them. And it's sort of like, okay, the, that that that's meant to fail at some point in time
0: in this ipo market a lot of the a lot of the public debate about ipos in 2021 in particular was around the idea of whether you know this idea of an ipo pop and whether early investors or founders were leaving money on the table a year later that ipo pop proves ephemeral and now we're talking about ipo busts or ipo routes um, yeah. In, in between those, you've identified the idea that when a company performs, it should, you know, increase in value over time. But can you help listeners understand the stakes in the debate about this IPO pop issue and, and how to, you know, whether founders or other people are quote unquote leaving money on the table, whether retail investors are getting treated well or not? What are the stakes in that debate?
1: Look, I think the, the popular wisdom would say that the the market needs to be enticed to buy these ipos by some kind of a discount right you know they're getting limited information they're being asked to make a decision on you know two weeks worth of you know kind of roadshow and you know if there's no discount they they, they'll just go buy something else that's fully liquid so they know they're going to be buying into something that's not fully liquid that may be destabilized you know so there's a little bit of a discount so it should be like you know, spiritually 15%, right? And the view is if it's more than 15%, like, you know, like 30 or 40 or 50, then the underwriters did a terrible job, right? And, you know, I think that that's, you know, sometimes fair to say that maybe that's the case, but the truth doesn't really come out for like two years, right? Right. Um, you know, so the question is, did Goldman Sachs and all these other large investment banks do a great job or a crappy job you know, overpricing all these IPOs. And no one says what a great job they did. They get penalized on the other side too. So I think it's very hard to win, you know, in the IPO game as an underwriter because you either underprice something or over. It's it's very hard to kind of get it right. And it's only proven, I'd say two years after the IPO. So if you look at an IPO, every IPO two years after the IPO and you sort of back off a 15% return for two years, basically that's what it should have priced at, right? Cause you know people mm-hmm. deserve like a 15% return or, you know, a year for two years, whatever. Right. And, you know, I, I've never seen that analysis done. Like what should the iPro price have been? Right. And if you're really good at pricing something, you should know what it's going to be worth in two years and price it, at you know, kind of a 25, 30% discount to the two year price. Yeah. Maybe when I get off the call, I'll just ask someone to go do that and show it to you. But like, that's, that's going to be the judge, you know? So if, um, you know, so, so that's, that's one way to think about we, it. We might, might be think.
0: too early to know, in other words, right? These IPOs sure. have been buffeted by macro forces, you know, huge risk off inflation, etc. But your, your point is whether the IPO pop was too much or too little, whether the current market prices are too much or too little, we'll know a lot more 12 months from now, even than we do now, despite the minute to minute efficient markets
1: hypothesis. Exactly. And, 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 you know, you take a stock like, you know, square when it went public, it priced way below it's, it's asking price and all these ratchets kind of kicked in for GIC and other people. And then like a year later, it shoots up to like 10 X the price or whatever it is over that next couple of years. So, you know, it was, it wasn't that it was priced wrong. It was actually priced low, right? Uh, Not high. It's just like in that. So in that case, and it's still up, You know, so you still could have invested at a much higher price and got a great return. So, you know, it's just hard to say, you know, but one of the famous failed IPOs I talk about all the time was probably the IPO of MasterCard, which every investment bank on the street brags that they were part of. But it was priced at seven, no, sorry, five billion dollars and is now worth like three hundred billion dollars. Right. So and that was only 2007, Um, you know, and. You know, not too much longer uh, past that IPO visa came in, saw the big pop come up, and they priced their IPO at the much higher price that Melco traded up to in the in the next year or so. But on that one, because the sellers sold such a big stake in the Mastercard deal, it they basically sold 50% of the company for like a tenth of its worth. So that's a major fail, right? Yeah. It, 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 you know, if you take something like of bill.com, which is the other end of the spectrum where they raised like $130 million in the IPO. Um, and it was deemed a low price at the IPO time, but because it popped so much and it's a kind of like, well, how stupid did, did, does everybody look? Well, stupid because you only sold a tiny sliver of the company, right? Yeah. So sometimes people will sort of say, you know, the fact that investors all made money and the stock went up and everyone's happy gives a good vibe around it. And that's worth the dilution you took and you know, so on and so forth. You know.
0: Yeah. By the way,
1: should they have should they have priced it five times the number and raised a billion dollars, would that have been better for them? You know, maybe. You know. So it's, it's 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 actually the juries and judges are always out on these things. And but the good news is, that, I mean, the, the banks always win. There's only the banks are the big investment banks are an oligopoly around IPOs. It's it's you know, JPMorgan, Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Citi, and a couple others. And and that's it, right? So you're stuck using one or all of them. And I think Silicon Valley, as much as they absolutely hate the big banks, you know, for their IPO execution and all this kind of stuff, they never reward, you know, uh, the smaller banks that are in the equity underwriting business to compete with them, right? right? So you don't have the Thomas Weisel, Robbie Stevens, Montgomery, you know, all those kind of guys that you used to have. So until they anoint someone else, you know the up and comer, they're stuck with the oligopoly of the of the big investment banks.
0: Steve, you're you're a deal maker, so I want to shift gears as we close out here, just to talk about the stages of being a founder. You know what you do essentially is you help founders negotiate with buyers of their stock, and that's the the one thing that you do, and you do it for early stage companies, you do it for late stage companies. Yep. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see founders make as they mature into this, uh, you know, learning this game
1: of negotiating with investors? Well, I, you know, I'll say more like mistakes in CalPERS versus mistakes in negotiating, although
0: yeah, yeah, fair I fair not
1: want a series on any of these, but like, um, I'd say the biggest mistake is over-optimizing for, you know, you know, the wrong things, right? I think, you know, people may over optimize for a brand name in their deal, right? Thinking that that firm is gonna add massive value to them or whatever. They may over optimize for um, valuation and 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 get horrible terms in the, you know, so I think it's just thinking about the DNA of the situation and doing the right thing um, is, is sort of the big picture. And I would say, I think the biggest mistake they make is it's it, oddly enough, um doing it yourself, right? Um, and or using a banker that that doesn't do what you think they're gonna do, right? And you know, I'm not trying to pitch our wares too much here, but I think that what we try to do is say, if if the banker does everything they're supposed to do and the founder does everything they're supposed to do, the result is going to be far superior than what the founder could do on their own. Or what the founder would do with a banker that wasn't super helpful and knowledgeable in the space, right? Um, and, and I'd say that all, a lot of that gets around just being ultra prepared for the process, right? You know, investors, as the stakes get higher, as the valuations get higher, as the dollar amounts going the deals get higher, the diligence gets more extreme, right? And of course, when the market's a little funky like it is now, the diligence gets even more extreme. And they want answers to really hard questions, right? And in this day and age, companies have been around for a while. They've got like you know sixty months of data. They've got you know uh, you know thousands and thousands or millions of customers that can be divided into tens and tens, uh, you know, tens of cohorts, um, deciles of cohorts, and you know, a lot of stories are in that data. Particularly when you had to live through COVID, on the pre-COVID, COVID, right. half-COVID, no-COVID. You know, I mean, it's very hard to analyze these companies. Um, And the other thing, that's sort of the micro version. The macro is how do you tell a 20 year story, right? And this is kind of what I was saying at the beginning about fintech and the next 20 years, we always look at a 20 year vision for the company. What's the product plan, what's the financial plan, what's the strategic plan, what's the state of the world going to look like in 10 or 20 years in that domain. Um, And if we just stick at what we're doing for the long term, you know, how do we transcend the competition, transcend market trends, transcend interest rates going up and down, um, and what kind of company we're gonna build. So you gotta get kind of micro and you gotta get macro. And we see no company we've ever seen raise capital do all of that the right way. Because right. why would you be sitting around um, with and a 20 seems year plan like, and like micro analyzing your data when you're just trying to get through two months, right? Right. And many
0: deals, Steve, as you articulate, uh, you know, many deals have near-death experiences. Yeah. Have have you seen, and certainly we're all living through the Twitter saga, so we see, you know, publicly played out the way deals come close and then back off and then back and close and finally close. Yeah. Um as as a banker, what is the role there to to try and keep things on track? Do you find that that these near-death experiences are kind of a natural part and experienced hands can get things back on the rails or yeah. or is this just the nature of, of the beast when you have, you know, big money at stake?
1: I mean, it's the nature of the beast, you know, but again, what are you optimizing for? You're optimizing for speed and certainty or are you optimizing for price, right? You need right. to know what you're kind of going for. And anytime you're completely optimizing for price, you're pushing people to the edge. And when you push people to the edge, cars fall off the track and they're hard to get back on the mountain, Right. Um, the question is, did it it fall off the mountain or did it skid into the, into the gravel, um, you know, and how good of a driver are you to sort of save that? Right. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of analogies around it, but I would say some of the best deals in history, um, you know, were shut down throughout the process. I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't just call the guys, you know, at WhatsApp and offer 19 billion, you know? He right. started at one, got the door slammed, came back, went to three, went to eight, went to 10. Eventually realized, you know, so right. sellers having, you know, the perseverance to sort of turn down or have deals fall apart is really a part of getting a great deal. Whereas Instagram, you know, got a 500 million valuation. They got offered a billion dollars and took it. Um, not great negotiators, these guys, uh, obviously. So, you know, a lot of our deals that have been these like, massive record setting deals you had to take some risks in the deal and you don't want to take so many risks that a really great deal falls off the plate but you do have to take some risks to get a great deal as a matter of fact i have a real life example you know one of our competitors uh had a deal just the other day i won't say the name of the competitor of the deal but um i got a call from the sponsor saying you know our we just had this deal fall apart we're switching bankers and i said well tell me about it he said you know steve we we got 25 written bids for this company. Right. This was like two weeks ago. I'm like, wow. Yeah. You know, he goes, but they were all 50% below our asking price. Right. Right. Um, and to me, that's like a horribly run process. Right. And some people say like, right. why if do you have you really that get much interest, bids? but no price discovery. Yeah. I, I, in the history of my life, I've never run a process where we got 25 or 30 bids. Right. If I start seeing 25 or 30 bids coming in, I'm going to, you know, you know, maybe raise the price, right. Maybe right. I'm going to tell people this. you know, I would just never have that happen. So it's a good example of like, you know, one of my favorite things that we talk about is like, you know, certain bankers are kind of more listing things like eBay and it just, it is what it is. You put a picture right. up a just generic description. And, and some are more like Christie's where you're like curating everything. You're curating yeah. both sides of the deal. You're knowledgeable of that Saison painting, etc. And, and, um, you know, one's just way more valuable than the other.
0: So, Steve, you've seen a lot of deals succeed, but final question before we let you go: Can you tell us? You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. There's the famous story about Zuckerberg turning down a billion dollars. Are there any fintech sliding doors moments like that? Are there defining companies in fintech that that almost never uh, came to meet their their destiny because of uh, deals one way or another?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think the most interesting one to me and that people tend to forget about is, you know, PayPal sold itself for just a tad over a billion dollars to eBay in 2001 or whatever it was, right? Early 2000s. Think about that for a second, right? This is a company that had the potential to be worth, you know, as much money as Tesla is today, right? Or, 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 or SpaceX, right? But they sold the company to eBay Um, and thank God Ebay, you know, nurtured it um, and turned it into. I mean, the stock's down now, but it was 250 billion not that long ago, you know. And so, to me, that's a it's it's a great long it's a great story. All the investors, you know, who created PayPal, which of course and and the founders, of course, everyone claims credit for inventing PayPal. Um, But the the funny thing about that is it only sold for a billion dollars. And by the way, they raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to get there. Right, so the gains on PayPal that was sold weren't that much. So sometimes you just have to stick with you know your entity um, and and keep going with it because I think PayPal could be worth even more money today had Elon Musk never left. Right. So um, now being incubated inside the eBay you know empire, you know where PayPal became the default payment method for all these SMBs and people selling on their marketplace. But like I think that's a story where you know, just something was massively undersold, right? Where if someone had sold the 20 year vision in 2001, you know, uh, Hey, eBay, if you buy this company and you make it the de facto payment method, the quote unquote, de facto payment method on the marketplace, it might actually become a $200 billion company. And if they'd actually done the math and thought it through and agreed, right, Right. then they probably would have paid 10 billion for it and still would have been an incredible um, outcome for PayPal. Right. So it's a good example of like a bad job of like articulating a 20 year story and articulating synergies. So, um, you know, and that's why when we raise money for.
0: Yeah, I, I love I love the story of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars invested, sell for a billion and then eBay somehow you know turns it out. So, so basically the only people who made money on PayPal were the founders and then the people who who became who stayed shareholders through the whole the whole ride.
1: Yeah. The guys who, I mean, the eBay made a ton of money out, but the post eBay spin shareholders of which, you know, eBay was one of them made a ton of money on it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, eBay shareholders, I should say. So, uh, yeah, that's no, really interesting case study. I mean, you don't hear people talk about it that much. As a matter of fact, I'm the only person I hear talking about that, but uh, I think it's fascinating.
0: Well, here here at the FinTech Beat, we love history, so we appreciate you coming by and and sharing stories over over 20 years.
1: My pleasure. Great to do this. And I hope we will do another one soon. All right. Thanks, Steve. All right. Take care. Bye now. The cliche
0: about investment bankers is that they don't care about the company. They just care about the transaction. After all, investment bankers get paid when a deal is done and not before. But Steve's stories today all emphasized the years before, and especially the years after, the transactions I asked him about. His critique centered on whether investors and founders understood their own 20-year stories. For PayPal, the $1 billion sale to eBay caused early investors to miss a 100x outcome 20 years later. For MasterCard, those who sold at the IPO missed an 80x return since 2006. As Steve points out, questions about an IPO pop or an IPO route are minuscule compared to those who can understand the long-run potential of the strongest fintech companies. And here's a lesson that's particularly relevant for this market. Be ultra-prepared. Don't over-optimize for things that won't matter to your actual business and define yourself by your customer success. Even in a down market, those lessons seem to be working out just fine for Stephen McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.